Robbie Watts and, uh, and Rebecca have been with us for the last couple of years. Uh, Robbie is a Georgia Tech grad, and the reason why they are down here is because he got hired by Grumman uh, two years ago. He's an engineer, um, but he has been attending Central Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, he's been doing online classes since uh, 2015, and so we've gotten to a point where uh, we have known Rebecca and Robbie, and they have been a part of uh, small groups and doing ministry, and Rebecca's gone on the trip to Ireland. And so uh, we've come to a time where Robbie's in a class where he gets to, to preach, and uh, we are a part of his uh, process as we come and assess his gifting and to see if he is truly called to the ministry. So he has given this uh, to his class, and so uh, we knew that he was going to be in the process, and so he comes today to bring us the word and confirm his call to ministry. And so uh, I'm going to pray for him again, um, and he's nervous, okay? And so... Uh, You need to love this man, and uh, we need to affirm his gifts. So let's pray. Father, put your hand upon him. Let him speak truth boldly and clearly. And Lord, may he never be timid. May he always speak from your scripture, speak your word, speak the truth to us, and may we hear it and apply it. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, good morning. I'll tell you, some of you may not know me that well because I'm not the most outgoing person. Uh, so if there's uh, anything else you need to know about me, Rebecca will be glad to fill you in. <laughs> uh, so we've been going through the book of Proverbs. And so we'll continue that this week as we look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. Uh, before we do, I'd like to go back to the Lord in prayer. Holy God, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for your Holy Spirit as we turn to your word now. I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to hear the word that you have for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So as we look at chapter 6, I began looking at this and one thing that came to mind was something that I heard from my parents growing up. So I am the third of four siblings, and I've got a younger brother who's about two years younger than me. So we were close enough in age that we spent a lot of time together. We spent a lot of time playing together. We got along really well sometimes. Other times we spent a lot of time together, and we argued and fought and hid and punched and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so for my parents, it was a bit of a challenge. Um, when we fought at home, fortunately, we were able to get sent. He got sent to his room. I got sent to my room. And so that bought some peace. When we were physically separated, things were okay. But it was a little bit different situation when we were in the car. Because when we started fighting, which it did happen, we started fighting in the car. And there was no physical separation. That wasn't an option. So for my parents, their solution was we were told to sit on our hands. That was it. So the rest of the car ride, we would sit on our hands. And that worked pretty well because it was pretty hard to hit your brother sitting on your hands. But the reason, the reason this came to mind is because that we were, we were told sit on our hands. We were told don't hit. But that wasn't really, that wasn't our parents' hopes and dreams for us to, to just avoid hitting, to just go through life sitting on our hands. And I think that's something that's important to keep in mind is this difference between the instruction that, that don't do this versus the real desire, the, 
what our parents really wanted for us. And so as we look at, at Proverbs 6, I think we'll see that idea come back. And I want to start by looking at these first five verses. Uh, the premise you can see from verse 1 is this idea of putting up security. And this is something like, like vouching for a person, whether it's a, a neighbor or a stranger. It requires making a commitment. You're committing to be accountable for someone else's actions, someone else's debts. It's a commitment that you have no control over. And as you can see from the language in the text, it's a, it's a kind of commitment that leads us to be trapped, to be ensnared, to be bound to another. In literal terms, it is financial. So it's becoming liable specifically for the debts or potential debts of another, agreeing to take on their risk. It's a little bit like co-signing of a loan. That's more of a kind of a modern equivalent. So in that case, a parent might co-sign a loan for for a 19-year-old child buying a car. And to some extent, they're taking on financial risk. They're putting themselves in a position where their financial future is tied to the child's ability to repay this loan. And I think that's a, it's a decent comparison. It does involve risk, but I don't think, I don't think it really captures the degree, the amount of risk that we're talking about in this passage by putting up security. I think it's maybe a little bit more like signing a blank check. There is no, there's no cap on the damage to be done. And so as we look at this, we see, if you've been with us the past few weeks, um, as we've been going through Proverbs, you've heard this, this section of Proverbs is from King Solomon speaking to his sons. And you see in these, a couple of times in these verses, he says, my son. So as words to a prince, a prince has certainly substantial financial means, a good name. The prince has a lot to lose by making this kind of foolish uh, commitment, foolish agreement. And that's the kind of rash agreement that we're talking about. It's the kind of thing that a young prince, even a boy, might be very tempted to, to get himself into. And I think as we look at it in those terms, I think it's easy to, to kind of lose sight of, of what's going on here. Because some of us are in a position where we can put our own finances at risk. And it's, we need to take the warning to be cautious about that. But for others here, that doesn't really hit home. Maybe you're more in a position where you're looking for someone to co-sign that loan. You need someone to put up security for you. So how do you read these verses? How does that apply? And I want to make sure that we don't skip over these verses regardless of your financial position. Because these verses are talking about something far more than, than just finances. Because you see, we all make commitments. We all make sometimes foolish commitments. And those commitments can trap us. They can impinge on our freedoms. So maybe you've given your word foolishly. You become trapped. And that's really what the topic here is. Any kind of commitment that traps us and prevents us from being free to be obedient to God. And this can come up in all kinds of ways. So maybe it's something very explicit. Uh, maybe at work. You've, be, you've come into a situation where you've given your word to do something that's unethical. You, you've committed to doing something not right. And so you've become trapped by this word that you've given. You're no longer free to be obedient, to do right. But maybe it's something far more subtle. I think of peer pressure. 
Because no one has signed a contract saying that we'll give greater weight to what other people think than what we know to be right. We don't make that explicit. And yet we do often value what other people think, sometimes even when that's contrary to what God thinks. And so when we submit to peer pressure, we become bound to others. We're bound by their opinions. We're trapped by what they think of us. And so this kind of trap is is subconscious, and yet it's still a foolish commitment. But sometimes it's not these rash commitments that are either subconscious or conscious. I think it's also a matter of priorities. Because sometimes we make commitments to other things and other people more important than our commitment to God. And these may be good other things, and that's the challenge. Sometimes we commit ourselves to good things that aren't the great things that God intends for us, that God desires for us. And so we leave ourselves trapped in these good things, and we're no longer free to pursue the great things that God has. And whatever the case may be, whatever your, wherever you see this in your life, any commitment that you've made that traps you, that leaves you bound to another, the, the instruction here in the text is clear. You have to get yourself free. Be free from all of these things that trap and ensnare. And you can see the urgency from the analogies that the text uses. You need to get out of these commitments like a deer needs to get out away from a hunter, like a bird needs to get free from a fowler. This is an urgent matter. You're in a life-threatening trap. So if you've surrendered your freedom to follow Christ, you must regain it and do it now. Don't wait until tomorrow. The text says, give your eyes no rest. And why do it now? We all know from experience that these kinds of things only get harder the longer you wait. If you've made that commitment at work to, to do something you know is wrong, it's tempting to say, you know what, I'm just going to get it over with this one time. It'll be a one-time thing. I'll move on and I'll do better next time. And that's tempting. But as the text says, don't wait. Don't wait till tomorrow or next week or next month to get out of this trap. Do it now. And avoid the regret. Avoid having to go back and clean up a messy situation. And even if it's already too late... Don't think that it gets easier next time. Because you see, once you've said no, once you've become entrapped once, it becomes that much harder to say no the next time. And so we need to be careful about letting these things drag on. And even if it's something more like peer pressure, where you've allowed someone else undue influence in your life, it's important that you make explicit action to correct the situation. Don't think that it will simply take care of itself. That undue influence won't go away until you make it go away. And again, it only gets harder the longer you wait. So however you're bound or trapped by the commitments you've made, you've got to find a way out and do it now. So God has granted us freedom through Christ. Don't squander God's grace by then making yourself bound to someone else or something else. And this idea of the constraint of being freed from constraints It's absolutely critical, but it's not enough. Because the question then is, what should we do with this freedom that we've been given? And so we move on and look at verses 6 through 11. And these verses present us with a couple of options. We see, on the one hand, the ant, and on the other hand, the sluggard. Now, I want to be clear, because I don't always enunciate. 
The word there is sluggard. We're talking about a slacker, a lazy person. We're not talking about a slugger, a home run hitter. So please be free to hit all the home runs you want. We're talking about a lazy slacker. Um, and so there are, the text points out these contrasts between the ant and the sluggard. You see, unlike the sluggard, the ant has a plan. You can see in verses 6 through 8, the ant uh, is hardworking. The ant is diligent. The ant looks ahead and prepares, sees what needs to be done, and does it. It doesn't require commands from, from someone in authority to force it to take action. The ant is, is proactive, seeing what needs to be done and doing it. On the other hand, the sluggard has no sense of direction, doesn't feel like he has anything he needs to accomplish. And so that leads the sluggard to this lack of motivation. The question in verse 9 is, how long will you lie there? It's as though, without any plan, the sluggard really has no reason to get out of bed. This, this slacker doesn't, doesn't even move. And so that's a great contrast with the ant. We see ants constantly active, always in motion, always at work. But it gets worse because the slacker then, refusing to get out of bed with no plan, nothing to accomplish, then makes excuses. He says, it's only a little sleep, just a little slumber, only a little folding of the hands to rest. What he's really saying is, it's not a big deal. How bad can it be? And I think those are dangerous questions to ask because as the text notes, there are consequences So it's telling us, look at the ant and be wise. Don't be like the sluggard, or you will find poverty and want. This idleness, this failure to act, will overtake the sluggard and lead to ruin. And it's a sure thing. It's not a, it's not a, an if, it's not a possibility. It will overtake the sluggard. But I think sometimes I can identify a little bit with the sluggard. Maybe you're like me, because I, I'm tempted to, to ask that. Is it really that bad? Will just a little sleep really lead to ruin? Really? I don't know. That's, that seems like a kind of a stretch. But as you think more about it, I think you'll find that bad habits, these things that, um, these laziness, uh, it comes on us little by little. It's not all of a sudden that you're going to wake up tomorrow and not even bother to get out of bed, become exceedingly lazy, doing nothing at all. No, it comes upon us little by little over time. Because you see, when you've let one thing slip, you know, it becomes easier to let a second thing slip. And then having having let two things slip, what's the big deal about a couple more? And that's how these things, you know, it, it spirals, it snowballs until... You get to a point where you're doing a little bit less each time. And as you look over the course of a little bit less each week, a little bit less each month, a little bit less each year, and that's what overcomes us. That's how we become like the sluggard. I read a really good quote by Ray Ortland. He says, Your real danger and mine is not that we become criminals, but rather that we become respectable, decent, commonplace, mediocre Christians. The 20th century temptations that really sap our spiritual power are the television, banana cream pie, 
the easy chair, and the credit card. The Christian wins or loses in those seemingly innocent moments of decision. How true that is that we win or lose in what seems like innocent little decisions. These small concessions add up, and they get in the way of us seeing God's power at work in our lives. I had a friend in college, and anytime someone said something along the lines of, oh, I don't have time to do that, he was always quick to respond, you don't have time, or it's not a priority. Now, as you can imagine, a college student, he said this all the time. It was so annoying. But he's right, because when you think about it, that's an important question. You don't have time, or it's not a priority. So when you've said, sorry, you know what, I just don't have time to commit an hour a week to this or that. Well, guess what? We all have 168 hours every week. So you can't say you don't have one hour a week. You do. You have plenty. Now, I understand maybe you've got 169 things competing for your time. And I know a lot of times it feels like twice that many. But regardless, we all have decisions to make, choices to make about what we will give priority. If you were with us this weekend, uh, Jeff provided us with some good tools, some good questions to ask as you look at your life and the ways that you prioritize things to see where you're really investing your time well and to see where there are opportunities to do better and to, to make better use of the time, the gifts, the resources that we all have. And I encourage you to, to take the time to look through those tools and to ask yourself those tough questions. So we've seen in this proverb that first and foremost, we need to be free from the things that trap us. But that freedom is not enough. We go on, we need to look at the ant and not waste our freedom, but to be active. Now this proverb hasn't really told us exactly what we need to be doing, but certainly not doing anything is not an option. That's not a proper response to our freedom. So the better response is to look at the ant to make a plan and to put it into action. So the obvious question that follows is, well, then what exactly should we do? And we can look through the remaining verses in this section and see, in verse, verses 12 through 15, we move on from talking about the, the sluggard. Don't be like the sluggard. And now we see the worthless, the wicked person. And again, the implication is the same. As you read the description of the wicked person, don't be like the wicked person. Because not only will poverty follow from that, but here we see calamity is the result of the the acts of the worthless person. As you look at that description, you can see the wicked person is characterized by this misuse of various body parts. This evil person, the evil person is transformed their entire being into a device for wickedness. The entire person from head to toe is corrupted. This doesn't mean to imply that uh, every wink is evil, for those of you who are able to wink. It doesn't mean that every time you point, it's evil. No, that's not the, that's not the implication. What it suggests is that all parts of our bodies contribute to the evil that's, that's part of who we are. You see, you can't say that while my eye is evil, the rest of me is pure. 
Because it, sin overtakes us. We are sinners through and through. We are like the worthless person in our entirety. And as we look through, continue in verse 16, you see the pattern of these six things and seven things. And this, this is a pattern that comes up elsewhere in Proverbs. And in this case, the, the seventh thing, that, that, that language suggests that the seventh is kind of the culmination. It's the summation of the preceding six. And so the, the six things, the first six, line up with those body parts that act in the evil or the worthless person. And the result, their summation, the culmination of those acts is the sowing of discord. And you also see that in the description. That's the final description of the worthless person. The sowing of discord that's so, um, that's hated by God. Now the question is, how have these verses answered the question of what should we do? And I think back to, to parents. When a parent says, don't hit, most of the time kids take that at face value. Don't hit means simply don't hit. But I think we need to think beyond that. We need to, to, to go deeper than that. Because when, what parents mean is far more than don't hit. Now parents, how would you feel if your child asked, what should I do with my hands instead of hit? Now maybe they're asking in a bratty way and you don't want to hear it, but what if they genuinely asked, what should I do with my hands? And I think that's what we need to be asking as we read this description of the evil acts in the body. Well, what should we do instead of this? I think too often when we think of God's commandments and obedience to those commandments, we think of three words. We think of thou shalt not. And we think that, think of those things as that's what it is to be obedient, is to avoid the things that we shouldn't do. But obedience is far more than just avoidance. It's far more about what you do than what you don't do. And so don't hit, like my parents said, sit on your hands. Well, certainly my parents didn't want for me to go through life hitting my brother or hitting anyone else. But they didn't want for me to avoid that by just sitting on my hands through life. Their desire for me was to do something more constructive with my hands, to to not hit, but do something better. And God's desire for us is far more than we than that we simply refrain from doing evil, that we refrain from being like the worthless person, but that we go beyond that and do something good, something useful. Uh, I was drawn to Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Uh, it says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So here Paul invites us to ask the question, so how do I present my members to God as instruments for righteousness? And I think that's really similar to the question we're asking in this proverb. How can I use my body my whole self, my actions, all of who I am in ways that glorify God. So by looking at the things that God hates, we find the things that God loves. So first we see God hates haughty eyes. So certainly that doesn't mean 
close your eyes. That's not how you avoid haughty eyes. No, God wants for us to look with humble eyes, to see people the way that God sees them. Similarly, similarly, rather than hands that are murdering or directing towards evil, we should use our hands to build up, to care for one another, to show love to the people around us. And again, feet, rather than running towards evil, we should be running towards God. We should have feet that carry us to wherever God calls us, wherever we can be most useful for his kingdom. And instead of having a lying tongue and using words that harm, we should, ha- we should set our, our tongue, our mouths, for a good purpose, to build up, to edify, and to encourage people. Most importantly, to glorify God. And our heart, in the Hebrew understanding, the heart is the seat of intelligence and understanding. And this is where we find desires and plans. And so rather than desires and plans that are evil and wicked, God craves, God wants for us to desire Him, to desire His goodness, and for us to make plans that reflect His glory. You see, the ultimate, the end, the the summation of these evil acts is the sowing of discord. So when we look at those opposites, as we do good, as we're... uh, productive with our hands, our feet, our whole bodies. The summation, the result, what we're working towards is being uh, people of peace, people of unity. That's where we need to be focused. In Psalm 133, it tells us how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So the instruction from this proverb is don't be like the worthless or wicked person who stirs up trouble in God's community. Instead, use your eyes, use your feet, use your tongue, your hand, your heart, your whole self. Give all that you are to stirring up glory to God. So this passage, as we look at it in in its whole, we begin by being freed from the commitments that trap us from foolish obligations that ensnare us and prevent us from following an obedience to God. And we use that freedom in ways that are active. We respond by doing something, by making plans and carrying them out, to get out and do something. And it doesn't have to be manual labor. When I say active, I mean doing anything. We're all called and equipped to do something for God's glory and God's kingdom. And what is that something we're to do? Whatever it looks like in your life, it'll be different for each of us. But we're all called to use our whole selves, our entirety, all of our actions, all of who we are, as we work toward peace and unity among people, as we work to glorify God with all that we have and all that we are. And this is our joyful response to God's love. It's not a grudging obligation It's not something that we do out of guilt, but that we do out of love and as we respond to God. So I pray that you have recognized and relished God's love and God's goodness in your life. And as you experience that, I pray that you would respond in these ways. Respond by using all that you have for God's glory. 
And this is God's ultimate desire for our lives. Not that we stop by simply avoiding evil, but that we look and do good and use our whole selves for his kingdom. That's God's ultimate desire for our lives. Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful for the word that you've given us this morning. I pray that you would give us the wisdom to to observe how it can be carried out in our lives. Father, I'm grateful for the freedom that you've given us. I pray that you would show us how to live in that freedom rather than to foolishly become entrapped. I pray that you would motivate us toward action and that we would use our whole selves for peace and unity here among us and for your glory and your kingdom. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.